0: And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. you You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: Slater, How are you? America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Happy Saturday. I have been on vacation all week, and I just got back midnight last night, and I've been on a complete media blackout for the week. So, why don't you tell me what's going on? No, I spent all last night catching up, uh, but I got to tell you, it was refreshing to do a little media blackout, and I recommend you do it for your own sanity. I've recommended that for a long time. Some people, pre, pre-election mostly, last couple of years, sent me an email said I can't take it anymore, what are we going to do, this, that, I was like, just got to just, just turn the TV off, don't watch any more TV, just stop cold turkey for a week and come back. Uh, You need to refresh every once in a while. So um, I did a little catch up last night. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. It seems like I didn't miss much. I I don't know. Now surely things happened. Accusations were made. News cycles were filled. But did anything really happen? I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Honestly, they can call in and be like, Slater, I can't believe you're missing this. I don't don't know. Now listen, Washington Post did print this. Editorial with the headline, Our Culture of Purity Celebrates the Virgin Mary as a Rape Victim That Hurts Me. So, so, this, so that happened this last week. That was written by a female pastor. What the heck? The the left will never understand the Washington Post. I don't care what this pastor thinks or writes, but the Washington Post, you have to print stuff like that, right? The left will never understand that this is why they lost the election. People have had enough of that nonsense. Talk about the Virgin Mary hurts me. Like I I need a safe space from the Virgin Mary, right? People have had enough of National Geographic putting a mentally unwell nine-year-old transgender child on the cover. Of their magazine and then patting themselves on the back and celebrating how historic this is. They'll never get it, and nothing is going to change for them this year from the media. Nothing will change, which is fine by me because that's why Donald Trump won. So it seems like the big story last week was the the, uh, the the next level of the obsession with Russia hacking the election. Right, that's that was the big news, right? Am I'm, I I'm, I'm, I'm missing that Russia hacked the election? So we got to keep making this a thing now do you know what the actual claim is by the left let me be specific by the media by the president the other day at his press conference like what's the specific claim now the big picture overarching claim is that russia swung the election or stole the election rigged the election whatever word they're using but you know what they really did or they're accused of doing let's just be very succinct and clear as to what they're actually being accused of They're accused of hacking into the Democratic Party's emails and exposing the lies and corruption and collusion within the Democratic Party with the Clintons and the media. That's the accusation. Hacking into the Democratic Party and exposing what they actually said and did. Now, what the media is not quick to tell you is that the Russians also tried to hack into the Republicans. Party systems, the RNC, but they couldn't. (laughs) The security, whatever, was better with the RNC than the DNC. So the Russians, whatever that even means exactly, no one cares to explain that, right? Just talk about the Russians, hacked into both parties' emails. They could only successfully do it into the Democrats. They revealed corruption. Within the Democratic Party, right now, here's the next leap that the left makes, and they just want you to go with it without asking how. Right, the leap that they take is that the information that was then given to WikiLeaks and and you know spread around that those emails swung the election. That's the claim that Russia hacking into the DNC that that swung the election. Now, I will I, I, that's not true, and I will use the same argument that I make when it comes to the so-called fake news that's out there. Fake news, let me just talk about fake news first, and I'll bring it around. Fake news does not convert anyone. No one changed their vote for president this year because they read a fake news headline, right? Or the clickbait headline that the Pope endorsed Donald Trump. No one changed their view because pro-Trump fake news, like the Pope uh, endorsed Donald Trump, pro-Trump fake news is not targeted towards Hillary supporters. Those headlines are not targeted towards Hillary supporters or Democrats or the undecided. It's targeted towards Trump supporters. Because for the fake news creators, their goal is to get clicks. The more clicks they get, the more money they make. And the best way for them to get clicks is to preach to the already converted. So they're not sending those headlines out and it's not getting spread on news feeds of Democrats or to convince Democrats or to sway Democrats or to swing Democrats. That's not the point of fake news It's to get clicks. And the best way to get clicks is to preach to the choir. There's not a single person in this country who was anti-Trump, who read a fake news story and then switched their vote to Trump. It d- did not happen. There's not a single person in this country who was ambivalent towards Trump, like, I don't know what to do, whatever, undecided, who read a fake news story, who, who turn, turned their vote to Trump. That did not happen. Anyone who got convinced or, or whatever moved by a fake news story was already a Trump supporter in the first place. Fake news did not swing the election in any way whatsoever. I don't even think it had an influence in it. it. Maybe it made Trump supporters more ardent Trump supporters. But in the end, that doesn't change anything. Okay, so that's true with fake news. Now, let me go back to Russia and WikiLeaks. And that. Maybe there were a few people who weren't going to vote, who decided to vote because of something that came out of WikiLeaks. Now, let me, let me just make one more disclaimer here. I'm sorry before I continue with this claim. Very few people watch the news. <laughs> I guess, like, if you go around to a man on the street interview and ask 100 people about WikiLeaks, They'll have no idea what you're talking about. If you ask 100 people, 96 of them will have no clue what you're talking about. And three of the other people who do will kind of vaguely have an idea, but they'll be wrong about what it really was. And then one person will truly be informed about what WikiLeaks is. So, like, it's because people who follow the news, like you do, because you're listening to the show on Saturday at 3.12 in the afternoon, you get it. You follow it. You're in it. But we assume that everyone else is too. But the truth is almost no one's paying attention. Almost no one. Even to WikiLeaks. Almost no one's paying attention to WikiLeaks. Or anything that's going on, right? So yeah, maybe there's a few people who were undecided or who weren't going to vote. And then something came out in WikiLeaks uh, and they decided to vote for Trump because of it. Or or maybe even like fewer than that, like a handful of people were going to vote for Hillary. And then something came out and they decided to vote for Trump. More likely, there were people who were going to vote for Hillary who maybe didn't vote at all because of something in WikiLeaks. They were so burned by what happened with Bernie that they're like, I'm not going to vote at all. So, but, yeah, but that doesn't swing the election. But when every time someone on the left makes this, this, this claim, clutching their pearls about Russia hacking the election, they, they're making the assumption that whatever Russia did and whatever we did swung the election. That's just not true. Notice the Russians did not hack the voting machines. <laughs> right? No one's making that claim. The Russians didn't come, somehow come up with a way where uh, people could vote illegally or vote twice or whatever. They didn't do that. They just re- re- revealed corruption that was going on within the political party. But again, almost everyone who voted for Trump would have done so without the WikiLeaks. There were no revelations in WikiLeaks, only confirmations. Does that make sense? There's a big difference there. There's no revelations, only confirmations. So anyway, I know we threw a lot there. Uh, My point is the media will never get it. So I've been gone for a week. I look back at what happened this last week, a little bit of an outsider's perspective because I wasn't paying attention, and it's just more nonsense, right? It's just more Russian hat, and and then Washington Post talking about how Virgin Mary is insulting to rape victims or something like, what? What total nonsense. They will never get it. The media will never get it. They'll never understand the role that they played in electing Donald Trump. And again, that's fine by me. I want to end this segment with Matt Waite. He is a journalism professor at University of Nebraska. And his prediction for 2017 is that nothing will change. Nothing will change. Well, they'll hallucinate more than ever, sure. But in the end, uh, there's certainly the media will certainly not reform in any substantive way. And here's what Matt concluded. He said, You won't fix, you speaking to the media, you won't fix trust in news because you won't fix how news gets made. Because you won't uh, fix how you hire senior leadership to diversify your thinking. Because you won't fix what stories are selected because you won't change who you hire to do those stories. Because you won't fix the ways that stories are written to be more transparent and more directly sourced to give people a reason to trust you because you won't fix the lack of training in newsrooms that could retrain reporters to source stories more explicitly because you won't fix the belief that trust and fake news is Google and Facebook's problem and not yours because you still don't believe that you are the problem. Wake me when you do. That's why the media will never change or at least won't this year. They still don't think they're the problem. 1-888-933-93. one we'll 93 Come back. We'll do one more fake news story. Confirmed a couple weeks ago. I said this thing smells. Horrible person because of it. And now it's turned out to be a lie. We'll do it next. 1-888-933-93. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show on The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
2: Mike Slater
0: We'll continue in a moment On the Blaze Radio Network this is mike slater
1: remember sighters slater, uh i think it was the week after the election we broke down a bunch of fake claims of assault from clinton supporters uh, let me be more clear that that's odd uh, the way I worded it, uh, we, we broke down claims from Clinton supporters that they were assaulted by Trump supporters. And most of these were fake and they spread quickly because people in the press rooms and other Clinton supporters, you know, in a shocked nation, so wanted to believe these stories to be true. So they wanted so badly and they think they, they, because, right, right, I mean, Trump is Hitler and all that. So, so they wanted so badly for it to be true that any story that even hinted. At that, then they ran with it, and that was all they needed. All they needed was a claim, and that was it. We made a Facebook video last week about this. Uh, there was a writer for uh, the website, Mike, M-I-C, Mike. And the writer tweeted out, If you're a person of color, Muslim, or LGBTQ, and have been attacked by a Trump supporter, email me at whatever. Uh, and then they wrote, safe space. So this YouTube guy, who was a conservative, completely made up a story about how he is a Native American woman Who was leaving a Starbucks and was mistaken for being Mexican. And someone said to her, you won't be here for long. So the guy makes up this story, emails it to this journalist. Hours after this completely made up story with zero follow-up, no additional questions whatsoever. This this journalist writes a story about it and it goes everywhere. Completely, totally made up. Totally made up. All right, so here's another one that was just confirmed. Yasmin Saweed Saweed in New York City, 18-year-old Muslim woman. She wrote on Facebook, if I may read in full. This is right after the election. She said, I initially was not planning on making a post about what happened yesterday. But you will probably be seeing stories about it on the news and in the newspaper tomorrow. I take the train every single day, going to and coming from class. But yesterday something happened that I never thought would happen to me. I was harassed on the subway last night. And it was just so dehumanizing. I can't speak about it without getting emotional. Three white racists ripped the straps off my bag and attempted to yank my hijab off my head. They yelled such disgusting slurs at me. I was so helpless and felt defenseless. Look at this blanking terrorist. Go back to your country. Take that rag off your head and so many more. Trump's name was repeatedly sad and It finally clicked in my head. No matter how cultured or Americanized I am, these people don't see me as an American. And it breaks my heart that so many individuals chose to be bystanders while seeing me get harassed verbally and physically by these disgusting pigs. Trump America is real. And I witnessed it firsthand last night. What a traumatizing night. Please stay safe, everyone. And never let anyone take your rights away. Just thought I should share this with all you tonight. Okay, That was her Facebook post. Now think about this. I'm not going to analyze this from a political uh, perspective. I'm going to look at this from a human psychology perspective. Think about what happened here. Not, not, in, not in that that moment, which didn't happen. Uh, but after she pressed, you know, send on her Facebook page or whatever post on her Facebook page, and this was put on the internet. Look at this from a human psychology perspective. Let's just look at the CBS newsroom, okay? the national CBS news headquarters in in New York City. Some staffer somehow came across this Facebook post. Right, the staffer sends it to a writer. The writer shows it to another journalist. They decide to go to this, go to the editor with this Facebook post. And they want to write a story about it. About this woman's experience. And the editor says, yes, go for it. Print it. And how many other people were involved in this process? I'm not sure. But not a single person. Not a single person said, should we do any research about this claim whatsoever? Should we do anything at all? None. No one said that. Which is why the next day, headlines, CBS News, Muslim teen verbally attacked on subway. Slate, New York subway riders stand by as three men verbally assault Muslim teenager. Yahoo News, three drunks on a train harass woman in hijab. Commuters do nothing. So you see how they, they, the last two people framed this story. It's not just racist, attacked Muslim woman, which is bad enough, but it's that people did nothing. That's the Trump America that they were trying to create. right? This idea that we are a racist country, that everyone's a racist country. Now that Donald Trump, the supreme racist, the grand wizard, has been elected, now all of our racistness can come out in full. So when some Muslim woman is getting attacked, we don't have to do anything. We can stand by and watch because good. Finally, that's happening. Commuters do nothing. The woman's now admitted to making up the whole story. And I guess she was in court the other day. Um, and she had a shaved head, so she 's kind of in a little bit of a mental breakdown now, my mom is a a huge Hillary supporter, and after the election, she was upset as you know anyone would be after their person loses an election i mean that 's fine, but very disturbed also by all the stories of trump inspired hate, like the one that uh just told you about and I told her at the time that most of those are made up, and she couldn 't fathom that she could not fathom that someone would make up a story like that she says it has to be true why would someone make that up everyone has their motivation but for this girl she was drinking with her friends she broke her parents curfew And she made up this story so that she didn't get in trouble with her parents. People make stuff up a lot. Sure, you've heard of the girl at North Park University in Chicago. She found a note on her door. She's bisexual, had a bunch of homophobic slurs on it. Hashtag Trump. And legitimate news outlets wrote stories about it. And then they connected it because this was right when Donald Trump was on 60 Minutes, right Right after the election. And he told supporters to knock it off if things are, you know, if they're doing anything wrong and, and tied these things in, right? So Trump's saying, knock it off. And then here's this woman, you know, getting, uh, you know, notes written on her door, like threatening her. To, 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 she made it up. People make it up all the time. Oberlin, and they're, they're making it up and then fake news, right? Oberlin College, 2013, there were a bunch of Nazi flags put up all around campus. And there were signs that were put on top of the, the water fountains that said whites only. And everyone freaked out because of all these hate crimes on campus. No, it was a student who did it to prove how racist America is. Weird. Every once in a while you get a story like this. There's a couple in, uh, in uh, Colorado, a lesbian couple in Colorado, who claims that someone spray-painted killed the gay on their garage and put up a noose in their front tree. And, and someone did do that. They did. They did it themselves. So listen, I don't know why people make stuff up like this. Attention, it's very profitable in today's culture to be a victim. You get major bonus society points if you're a victim. But the problem is, as long as the media reports these as if they're gospel, then no one's going to take the media at their word ever, nor should we.
0: This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on
2: the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater.
1: There's one last quick story and then we'll get to some solution stuff here. Babson College in Boston tomorrow, sorry, Monday, the honor board will make their decision, their final decision regarding discipline of of two of their students. Um, They're under investigation, two of the students under campus investigation. Let me just read the opening paragraph from the Boston Herald. Uh, Two Babson College students who were called before the school's honor board yesterday are expected to learn Monday if they will face any discipline for, for what? Hmm, interesting question, for what? What could these two students have done? Um, they will They will learn on Monday if they will face any discipline for waving a Trump flag from a truck on the nearby Wellesley College campus the day after the election. That's it. Waving a Trump flag from a truck. Uh, this is the last line of the article. These two students were banned from campus after their November 9th ru- uh, truck ride through the college when they flew a Trump flag and shouted Make America Great Again. The ban was lifted last week after college campus police or after campus police reported they could not substantiate claims that the pair shouted racial and homophobic slurs. End of story. <laughs> so they may they're going to be dis- maybe kicked off, expelled for doing that. Uh crazy times. All right. So let's get down to business here. A couple weeks ago, we said that there are two things that Donald Trump could do, President Trump could do, that would be good and would have the added benefit of sticking a thumb in the eye of the left. Which is which is nice. No, that's not the main motivation here, don't get me wrong, but it's a nice little added bonus at the end, a little dessert. Two things. First, make our electric grid carbon free. Right? Left freaking out about global warming. Okay, I'll tell you what. Let's make our, nu- our, our electric grid carbon-free with nuclear power. Maybe we'll talk a little more about that coming up. That's point number one. And number two, second thing that Trump should do that would be good and would stick a thumb in the eye of the left is offer free college education to everyone. Now, we'll talk about the nuclear power coming up, but what about the free college? How can a President Trump... This. Now, l- let me say this. He- hear me out here. First, this will not be should not be more of what we've had the last few decades where co- uh, politicians promise to make college more affordable. That is precisely why colleges are so expensive in the first place, because politicians for decades have promised vote for me and I'll make college more affordable. I'll take 60 seconds to explain how this works. We've done it a million times before, but college prices, the college tuition has been the same for forever. It's only gone up since politicians said, I'm going to make it more affordable. So let's say college used to cost a thousand bucks a semester. Politicians said, I'm going to make it more affordable. We're going to give out more student loans. We're going to give out another thousand dollars in student loans. So the college just says, okay, great. Uh, the student pays a thousand and the government's going to give me a free thousand dollars as well. Right? Cause when you take out a loan, the college gets the money. You get the loan. The College gets the money right now from the government. Right? So college says, all right, tuition's now $2,000. So a politician comes around next year and says, uh, vote for me. I'll make college more affordable. I'll give you more loans. So now they give $5,000 in loans. So the university says, awesome. Tuition's now $6,000. So everyone's like, oh my gosh, college tuition's so expensive. So a politician comes back around and says, vote for me. I'll make college more affordable. All right, so we vote for them. Now they give out $10,000 in student loans. So the college comes back and says, all right, great. Tuition's now $11,000. So and we do this on and on and on, and now tuition's over $60,000. Okay. Precisely because... Politicians said we're going to make it more affordable, and they burden kids with tens of thousands of dollars of student debt. It is unconscionable, but that is exactly why college is so expensive in the first place. So we're not going to do more of that. Okay. That doesn't make any sense. This is not Hillary's plan to make college debt free, whatever that even means, or Bernie's plan, which is just, you know, have taxpayers pay for everyone's college because college is a human right or something, which would be hugely expensive and would just turn college into even more of the 13th grade than it already is. We need a totally new way of thinking about this. A few days ago, we need a new way. Well, I take that back. We don't need a new way of thinking about college. We need to go back to the old way of thinking about college and achieve that in a new way. Trump a couple of days ago had all the uh, the tech giants in his Trump Tower boardroom. He had Jeff. He had Bezos from uh, Amazon. He had Tim Cook from Apple. Larry Page from Google. Elon Musk from Tesla. He had the head of IBM and Intel and Microsoft and Facebook. And of course, they were all around the table. And at the head of the table was Peter Thiel, who was the only proud Trump supporter in Silicon Valley. And gosh, I wish I could have been there at that meeting so badly. I would have loved to hear what was talked about there. So. I could take a guess. I'm certain that all the tech people talked about uh, different regulations and taxes that are hurting innovation. And I would like to think Trump said, perfect, we'll get rid of all of them. But I also hope he said one thing to them. I hope he said, guys, figure out how to make college education available to everyone. So Andy Kessler wrote an editorial in the wall street journal, proposing what he calls, it's a new GI Bill, but it's a GI Bill for everyone. Here's what he says. He says, Udemy, which bills itself as the world's largest destination for online courses, has thousands of courses in computer skills and art and teacher training for 200 bucks. The online education firm Ivy Tech teaches people how to use digital technology that controls machine tools. HHA Online has $90 online courses for home health care. Coursera, another big player in online education, teaches all aspects of robotics, no application essays, no education department messing with course selection, no teachers unions, no degrees. Instead, only a computer or tablet and successful completion produces a certificate. The right combination of certificates puts you on a list to be hired for all sorts of jobs, computer support specialists, outside electrician, freight stock worker, sonographer. Radiation therapist, actuary, the list goes on. And why not let private companies, IBM, Ford, Pfizer, Amazon, and others, come up with an online curriculum that they would hire from? Now, yes, the devil's in the details. Quality controls would help keep standards high. Fraud could be resolved using smartphone fingerprint recognition. LinkedIn would handle certificates and provide a searchable database for qualified workers, etc., etc., But yeah, we got to think like this, right? Like this is the revolutionary thinking that Trump needs to to spearhead. Not Trump himself, but the, you know the people he surrounds himself with need to spearhead. I've I've said for a long time. I don't know why companies don't have their own certificate courses, sort of like their own mini colleges, right? So IBM has a college program that you go into after high school or whenever you want, right? So you you follow their two year program, sort of like a like a new age uh, apprenticeship, right? And then you got it once you you complete their course program, then you have to work for IBM for five years after you graduate or whatever. Whatever the terms are, I don't know. But the point is college education needs and today can be available to everyone. But we have to ask ourselves, what is the point of college? And that brings us back to the fundamental question. And that's why I said a second ago, we don't need to completely rethink college education. We need to go back to what college education really is. And So what is the point of college? Is the point of college, and this is so important, no one's asking this, is the point of college to live in a dorm room? Is the point of college to go to football games and sit in the student section every Saturday? What's the point of college? Is it to go to the dining hall and hang out with friends in the dining hall before class? Is that the point of college? Is the point of college fraternities, is that the point? Now, these are all fine things, but that's not the point of college. The point of college is to learn things that help you get a better job. So what if we can do that without the dorm rooms and without the college student section the football game student sections and without the dining halls and without the frat houses? Can we still achieve that same goal, the old goal, the original goal in a new way? Yes, with online courses, and maybe it's not, you know, your basic online degrees, or, or, or maybe like what what maybe what some people think of online courses is now, like, uh, like University of Phoenix online. I don't know, like, right, right? But even something more specific, more tailored for IBM or tailored specifically to to Ford or whoever. There's a way to do this but we got to get rid of the old thinking that is you have to push every high school senior into a university setting with dorm rooms and dining halls and all the rest. That's not what everyone needs or what everyone should have. Even if there was no, even if they weren't saddled for debt with the rest of their lives, that's still not a thing that everyone needs. Trump and the people he's surrounding himself with and, 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 Working with uh, people in Silicon Valley and all around the country can revolutionize higher education in America, not just for 18 to 22 year olds either, but for everyone. Really, really exciting opportunities here. 188893393. Slater radio on Twitter, Mike Slater show The Blaze Radio Network spread the word.:
2: You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: I'll get to the global warming and the uh, carbon-free electric grid coming up next. But seeing the picture of all the, the tech guys around the table in Trump Tower, hopefully some of them willing to, to work with Trump and not sabotage um, the things he wants to do. It it just proves an argument we made a while ago that you're not voting for Trump. And this, this is for people. Listen, I made a lot of arguments um, for different types of people because different arguments appeal to different people. So one of my arguments to people who are kind of on the fence about Trump and whatnot, you're not voting for him. You're voting for the people he surrounds himself with. And I think we've seen that at work here in these last couple weeks. And not only the the official people he's surrounding himself with, but just surrounding himself with people, like having all the tech people there in the first place is, is a good sign. And it's wild because you know, a while ago people made the argument that Trump doesn't know anything about anything. And Scott Adams made the point that no one can know everything that you would need to know to be president of the United States. It's impossible. <laughs> it's, it, that person doesn't exist. There is no Solomon that we can elect for president who knows everything that, they need, that you would need to know to be president. It does not. It's to stop looking for it. Instead, we need to install someone or elect someone who is a great delegator. A great listener who can surround himself with people who are experts in those given fields. That's a way better skill set to have, right? So do you want to try to find the person who is the expert in economics and the expert in foreign affairs and the expert in every single country uh, policies and the expert? No, like that doesn't exist. Or do you want to find someone who has the ability to surround himself with five of the top experts in a certain topic on economics and talk to him for an hour and then learn everything that you would need to know in order to make the best decision on that given topic or have the five best people who are experts about Syria around the table and then the five top experts on healthcare reform and then the five top experts on, on, on education or whatever. That's the person you need. And I think Trump is, and I said this before the election, I believe it now, I think he will be known as the great delegator Set a goal, surround himself with the bright people to to achieve it, and say, go. Because that's what you have to do in business. You can't run all these towers and all these different businesses doing it all yourself. It's impossible. You have to delegate. And I think he's going to do that in really really interesting ways that will surprise a lot of people. And then take their advice as well. Do you remember Trump on the campaign trail was talking about waterboarding? And we got a waterboarding on them. And then he met with his new soon-to-be Secretary of Defense, General Mad Dog Mattis, who was the man. And it was right after he met with him for maybe the first or second time, and and Trump came out and talked to the New York Times. And, well, I can read it here. Um, This is the New York Times. Trump said about waterboarding, quote, he, meaning Mad Dog, never, he said, I've never found it useful. Give me a pack of cigarettes and a couple of beers and I'll do better. Then Trump said, I was very impressed by that answer torture is not going to make the kind of difference that a lot of people are thinking. So that's what he gets from meeting for literally an hour with Mad dog Matt Mattis. Now the left will freak out and say, Oh, it's another broken promise. I mean, you think they'd be happy that he changed his view on waterboarding quick side note on this. I don't think any conservative or anyone voted for Trump so that we will now waterboard people. I think the point is that we will do whatever it takes to get information out of people In order to take the terrorist threat seriously and that's what trump is doing whether we waterboard or not right but again we're going to elect trump so that he can surround himself with general mad dog Mattis because he knows what's best and trump will delegate to him and then he will follow according to what mad dog thinks right that's that's leadership so scott adams said that you can get experts you don't need to be an expert on a topic but if you get experts around a table for an hour then you can become an expert in pretty much anything at least enough to make a good decision on that topic so trump meets with mad dog mattis for an hour changes his mind on the specific topic of waterboarding that's impressive and you know what else it shows shows humility when i met trump for the first time uh it was almost a year ago it was just over a year ago i got a facebook uh you know memory (laughs) one year ago he did that 90 minute interview with trump in his office and uh arrogant and then you see him on the campaign show and arrogance is the word that's easily thrown around to describe him arrogant people don't do this arrogant people do not surround themselves with people and listen to them and take their advice and change their minds that's not what arrogant people do so bombastic braggadocious maybe not even bomb- i don't know there's other words you can use to describe them but arrogant is not one arrogant people do not do that i'm excited for a lot more of that moving forward Slater Radio on Twitter, Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Coming up next, want to talk about climate change and how I think in the next few years we're not going to hear much about it anymore. We'll explain why next. Spread the word.
2: You're listening to Mike Slater.
0: Part of the next generation of talk radio. On
2: the Blaze Radio Network.
0: Mike Slater in three, two, one. you You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: Slater Slater's America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. Merry Christmas. That's the first time I've ever said that. How can that be? It is what? What is it? It's December 17th. That's the first time I've said Merry Christmas. The heck is wrong with me. I have to admit, it's hard to get in the Christmas spirit out here in San Diego. And I was just in Hawaii. Uh, it just like, it's harder to get in the Christmas spirit out here. And I speak to a country that is in below zero temperatures. Uh, Merry Christmas. Speaking of below zero, uh, I've got some global warming things that we need to talk about. I'm not sure where to start, though. Let's start here. Uh, I like this analysis from Francis Menton. Uh, He makes the prediction that the the whole global warming scaremongering will go away in the next few years. That's a pretty bold prediction because a lot's riding on it. But I think he might be right. I'll make his argument here. Uh, It starts with the EPA. So the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, is where the so-called science, which we'll get to in a little bit, it's where the science turns into policy. Right, So there can be all these scientists coming to whatever conclusions they want. That doesn't affect policy. It may affect your behavior in different ways, but minimal ways. Um, when it goes into the government world, that's when it turns into law and policy, and that's the EPA. So the last eight years, the EPA's goal, almost like a filter, is to prevent any contrarian views on global warming from ever being heard, let alone considered or allowed to alter policy that they want to implement. Okay, so it filters out any contrarian views whatsoever. Now, I should say they do two things the EPA. They silence any opinion other ag- that's against theirs, right? And then the 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 science that does filter through. The EPA doesn't ask honest questions to those scientists. Doesn't hold The EPA doesn't hold those scientists and their findings feet to the fire. Now with Donald Trump as president or more accurately, uh, Scott Pruitt as head of the environmental protection agency, he was, he was the attorney general of Oklahoma. The opposite will happen. First, everyone can be heard. Okay. All opinions, all findings, all scientific research will be considered. And People who, the scientists who, who believe in climate change and it's a huge problem and we're all going to die, they will be called to answer questions that they haven't been asked in the last eight years because the EPA, EPA hasn't wanted to ask them. As Francis Menton wrote, he says, questions like, why are recorded temperatures, particularly from satellites and weather balloons, so much lower than the alarmist models had predicted? How do you explain an almost 20-year pause in increasing temperatures, even as CO2 emissions have accelerated? Also, what are the details of the adjustments to the surface temperature record that have somehow reduced recorded temperatures from the 30s to the 40s, and thereby enabled continued claims of warmest year ever when raw temperature data shows warmer years 70 and 80 years ago? Suddenly, the usual hand-waving of the science is settled is not going to be good enough anymore. Okay, so you see those two things that are going to change now? So we're going to have all science uh, heard. We'll get to some more of that in a second. The scientists who have been preaching the global warming alarmism for a while now, they're going to be asked a few more questions that they haven't been asked in the last eight years. And particularly the scientists who have been filtered out. The last few years are going to have that chance to speak, such as Princeton physicist Freeman Dyson, who said, I'm 100 percent Democrat and I like Obama, but he took the wrong side on climate issues and the Republicans took the right side. Or Nobel Prize winning physicist Dr. Ivar Gavier, global warming is a non-problem. I say this to Obama. Excuse me, Mr. President. What? But you're wrong. Dead wrong. Okay, then we can go on and on with other scientists who have different opinions. Now, you say, well, I thought 99 percent of scientists agreed. It's so funny. The president will say it all the time. 99% of t- scientists agree. Agree on what? <laughs> right? They never answer it. 99% of scientists agree on what? You can't get 99% of scientists to agree on anything. But they never even define the what the what is. 99% of scientists, it's actually, the truth is, 99% of selected scientists, right, agree on a very tiny aspect of the entire global warming discussion. But they don't agree on everything. And they certainly don't agree on the conclusions that the EPA and the Obama administration have made in the last eight years. So, our goal as conservatives now moving forward is not to silence anyone, but to question everything. Let all scientists make their claims. But also, it must be open to an honest hearing. All scientists, all science. No more, you're a climate change denier. None of that. Last week, we told the story of the scientist who wrote for uh, the blog 538, the Nate Silver blog. And he was kicked off the website and blacklisted from everywhere because he was labeled a denier, the scientist who's been studying for you know decades. Labeled a denier. Now, why is he a denier? Well, he believes that the climate is warming. He believes that humans play a major role. But his major focus is on storms. And he says that far from there being an increased intensity in storms over the last few decades. He says hurricanes and and, and earthquakes and droughts, not earthquakes, hurricanes and tornadoes and droughts are actually at really low levels for the past few decades. But he's labeled a denier because in order to scare people, they have to say, oh, my gosh, climate change is so real. Look at all the storms. There's going to be more hurricanes, more tornadoes, more earthquakes, even even though there's zero relation whatsoever. But whatever claim they need to make, they need to make it. This scientist comes in and says, whoa, 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 listen, I believe in climate change. I believe it's getting warmer. I believe humans are playing a major role, but it's not causing more hurricanes. Denier. It's really important that we as conservatives moving forward hear everything. We can't be just as bad as they were, right? Just as bad as the left was. And kick certain people out of the, the, uh, the discussion as well. We need to hear everyone and think really, really, think a lot before we turn these claims into policy. And I'll talk about uh, how science has changed over just the last two years on, on, on many topics. Right. I want to talk about scientific consensus, which we, for whatever reason, far too often take as gospel. One last point here, though, uh, people on the left with Donald Trump winning are very concerned about the uh, the loss of leadership on climate change issues around the world. All right. If we step down from our prominent position leading the charge, then other countries will stop following. And to that, I say good. I think it's high time that Germany stop with their obsession with solar power. It's one of the cloudiest countries in the world. <laughs> and they want to get their power from the sun. Well, this obsession has made electricity three times as expensive as here in America, which is way too expensive already. And what a shame. We're not going to be leading the charge with the Paris Agreement. What is China going to do? Oh, we did so much. Oh, we we, we worked so hard with China to get them to make major agreements with the climate. Did we? Do you know China agreed to not reduce their carbon emissions at all? What they agreed to is to not build as many coal power plants as they would have over the next 14 years. So let's say they, they wanted to build 50 new carbon uh, coal power plants. Now they're just going to build 49, and that's the grand agreement. And that's only until 2030, and then after 2030, they can do whatever they want. But also they're, they're they were sure to put in there that they have the right to change their mind until then, too. So that's nothing. They've agreed to nothing. And that's the leadership from America over these last eight years on this issue. So what are they even talking about? Right, I want to take a break here because I want to talk about the science being settled next, but, or scientific consensus next. But the point is that climate change activists no longer have a free ride like they've had these last eight years. Saying the science is settled is no longer good enough. The deniers will now have an opportunity to respond. And policies will be made by sensible people who put human welfare as their utmost priority. And hopefully the whole world will stop with this nonsense and instead focus on improving standards of living for human beings and not on climate change obsessions. We'll talk about scientific consensus. Next, Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
2: You're listening to
0: Mike Slater.
2: On the Blaze Radio Network.
1: we we'll got some time here. Let me quick clarification on what I meant in the last segment by will. What did I say? Uh, decisions, policies will be made by people who put human welfare and, 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 and human standard of living as the utmost priority. Um, that's what the climate change activists do not do. They put the welfare of the planet above human beings. Um, let me give you an example of, of what I mean by that. Oh, real quick. Sorry. I lied. Let me do this story first. Uh, two segments ago, our last hour, we were talking about, uh, Trump being a great delegator and not, you can't be arrogant. You know, a lot of people say he's arrogant, but you're not, you can't be arrogant if you surround yourself with a lot of people who are super smart and experts in their fields and with people who used to be your enemies. So here's Romney. Mitt Romney said on the quote here, um, he praised Donald Trump for being quote, open to alternative views. Okay. That's arrogant. People aren't aren't open to alternative views anyway now moving on um so what do i mean by by putting human welfare as the utmost priority huffington post just yesterday headline un the united nations to hold a major meeting on tuberculosis the top global infectious killer so the top killers in the world right number one causes of death around the world number one heart disease then stroke then lower respiratory infections followed by chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, then tuberculosis, and lung cancer. Okay. Now, what do these last few have in common? They're all about the lungs. If you add up all the lung-related diseases, then that is the number one cause of death. Those, that group is the number one cause of death more than heart disease and more than stroke. Lung-related diseases. Now, what's the leading cause of lung-related diseases? Not smoking. Indoor air pollution. Indoor air pollution from what? Like factories? I don't even get that. What's indoor? No, indoor air pollution because most of the world doesn't have electricity. So they burn fires inside their homes for heat and for cooking. And the main fuel that is used is dried animal dung. If anyone's ever served in Iraq or Afghanistan, you'll you noticed when you're walking down some of the town streets, there's walls with animal dung flung up against the wall. That's to dry it out. And it's used as like firewood inside the house, which is then burned. And then the kids and adults breathe in this toxic fumes and die. Okay. Leading cause of death in the world. I think we should be more concerned with human welfare and build these people a reliable coal power plant so that they can have electricity, but the global warming nuts won't allow it because it's bad for the planet. So people die. I think it's time we stop with that nonsense. All right. I want to talk now about scientific consensus. We hear about this all the time, right? Scientific consensus. Uh, I want to tell you a story about it. Let's go back to 1988. Not that long ago, uh, the Surgeon General said ice cream is as bad of a public health menace. As, let me say it again: is as bad as a public health menace as tobacco. He said that foods high in fat cause coronary heart disease and kills people. And he wrote in this report, he said, the depth of the science base underlying its findings is even more impressive than that for tobacco and health in 1964, right? Now, that sentence from the Surgeon General is not true at all. I want to read here from the science reporter for the New York Times, John Tierney. It's an article from 2007, but it's uh, it's obviously still true today. I'm going to read from the article and bounce back and forth a little bit here. John Tierney said, uh, The notion that fatty foods shorten your life began as a hypothesis based on dubious assumptions and data. When scientists tried to confirm it, they failed repeatedly. But you're wondering, how could the Surgeon General be so wrong? Isn't it his job to express scientific consensus? Now, here's the thing. He was. In 1988, he was expressing scientific consensus. But he was still wrong. He was the victim of a cascade. We human beings, we like to think that we improve our judgment when we put our minds together, but that's not always true. What happens most of the time is someone gets something wrong. And then the second person, D doesn't know the answer, so he just goes along with whatever the first person said. And the third person thinks that something else is right. But because those other two people who are probably smarter than me think this other thing, I'll just go with them. And the more this goes on and on and on. And then we have what's called an informational cascade. And everyone assumes that, well, just all these people can't be wrong. So how did this start? Fatty foods being dangerous started with Ansel Keys. Um, If you're familiar with World War II, K-rations were named after him. He said that in the 1950s, there were more people suffering from heart disease because they were eating more fat. Well, more fat than what? More fat than humans in the past. Well, we don't know how much fat our ancestors ate. We don't don't know. We don't know. We don't know if were they eating more back then or less. He made an assumption that we're eating more fat today. Also, yeah, there are more cases of heart disease, but... Not because there was more heart disease, mostly because people lived longer and, and more people were able to see doctors than in the past. Like a long time ago, you just died of heart. You just died. But now we know you die of heart disease. So people are like, oh my gosh, all the heart disease all of a sudden. Also, this doctor compared heart disease and diet with five other countries and he found a correlation. But if he included the other 22 countries, which we had the data for at the time, then there would be no correlation at all. So he selected only what confirmed his hypothesis. Now here's, here's the deal with this because this could just be a lone guy with a crazy theory. But in 1957, the American heart association looked at his report and concluded that the correlation between a high fat diet and heart disease quote, does not stand up to critical examination does not. That was 1957. Three years later, The same group, the American Heart Association, wrote that the best scientific evidence of the time says that there is indeed a correlation, so why the change of heart? Wouldn't you know it, Dr. Keyes is a new member of the committee on the American Heart Association. Time Magazine picked up the story. Senator George McGovern issued a report about it. The USDA then went with it, made their food pyramid, they put fat at the top, carbohydrates at the bottom. Even though now we know that carbohydrates is just sugars that leads to obesity and not fats. So it turns out the USDA had it completely backwards. There were three scientists at the time who testified in front of Congress that they were all wrong. And they were eviscerated by politicians in the media. They said, how dare you disagree with the findings of the American Heart Association? How dare you disagree with the McGovern Committee? How dare you disagree with the USDA? This is called a reputational cascade. Now it's a giant risk for any scientist to go against popular wisdom. this, This entire claim started on a bad assumption, faulty data, and just cascaded from there. All to the grand official, the grand scientific consensus that high-fat diet leads to heart disease, and it's just not true. This is the global warming story. Replace every noun in my story about fat with global warming, and you have the exact same story. Don't fall for the cascade. Don't fall for the hysteria. Look for the facts and the truth. And I hope we can do that for the next four years, at least. Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
0: Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Radio Network. Uh,
1: it's nice when the show comes together like this, it's almost like we planned it. So in the last hour, talked about two things. I mentioned two things that Trump can do that are good and have the added benefit of sticking the thumb in the eye of the left. Uh, the one that we talked about in greater detail was free college education, but not in the way that you may be thinking, not in the Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton way, but in a, in a, in a completely new way. Uh, we talked about that earlier. I'm not going to go into it again. The second thing that Trump can do is to create a nucle- Excuse me, a carbon-free power grid, which is a good thing in and of itself, and I'll explain why, but also it's stick the eye, a uh, thumb in the eye of the left who's freaking out all about global warming. They go, like, all right, fine. You think global warming's a big problem? You think carbon emissions is the big problem? We'll go carbon-free. Oh, great, solar panels and wind farm. Nope, nuclear. Right, that will be the ultimate just troll move from president Trump to all the people hallucinating about him. If he can, let's, you know, carbon freeze a little much. Let's say cut our carbon footprint in half. It'd be amazing. How do you do that? Nuclear power. Now, why do I think this will actually happen? In 2015, Peter Thiel wrote an editorial in the New York times praising nuclear power. And he gave very specific things that regulators need to do, that the government needs to do to allow for more nuclear power plants. More nuclear power plants that will eliminate all energy shortages. Simple, the science is settled and uh, will emit zero carbon. That same Peter Thiel is now Trump's main transition advisor. And as we talked about, when all the tech guys... Apple, IBM, Intel, Facebook, Twitter, every, Bezos from Amazon, Google, when they were all on Trump Tower the other day, the guy who was leading the charge was Peter Thiel, who was a genius and one of the most well-respected uh, inventors, innovators, capitalists in Silicon Valley. And now he has Trump's ear like maybe no one else. So this one will probably happen. So what about nuclear power? Why don't we have it? The left freaks out about it. It doesn't make any sense. Peter Thiel talks about how in the 60s we had a practical plan to have our energy grid, our electric grid, be carbon-free. But it never happened. Why not? Because the left freaked out about it for no reason at all. And now people assume that they were right. Let's talk about nuclear power in America. We're going to break a lot of your assumptions that you're having right now. Right now, 20% of our electricity comes from nuclear. There are zero issues. None. None. Now people will point to Three Mile Island. Right, the meltdown that happened at Three Mile Island. Do you know how many people died at the Three, Island, uh, Three Mile Island meltdown in Pennsylvania? Do you know how many people died from that meltdown? Zero. Do you know how many people had health issues as a result of that meltdown? There was a state registry of 30,000 people who lived within a five-mile radius of the nuclear plant. 30,000 people were on the state registry, and they tracked the medical records of these people. Zero. Zero health issues. Now, I think, say Slater, what about Chernobyl? Right, we hear, that, that's the big one, right? Chernobyl and Russia. That's the big, or Ukraine. That's the big attack. Or the big, the big nuclear meltdown, right? How many people died from the Chernobyl nuclear meltdown? How many people died? Two. Two people died from the explosion. Now, I'll be honest. You, I'll be fair. 37 people died in the days after the explosion. All of them were firefighters. And they died because they rushed into the nuclear area without knowing what the risks were, and they died from radiation poisoning. And I should also admit that a couple other people died in a helicopter crash. All right, the helicopter was touring over the site, hit some power lines, and crashed, and those people died too. That's it. But from the explosion itself, too. There's double-sided. To a ton of people got sick. No, there's no evidence. Listen to that. What I'm going to say right here. There's zero evidence that there's been any increase in deaths from cancer from Chernobyl. And anyone who gives you a number is making it up. Now they'll say that 40,000 extra cancer deaths can be blamed on Chernobyl from people living in the vicinity of the area, 40,000. But 40,000 cancer deaths is less than 1% of the cancer mortality that is expected in that affected population, less than 1% of what's expected. That is statistically undetectable, and there's no way of concluding that those deaths were specifically from Chernobyl. Now, putting all that aside, even if it was, way, even if even if thousands of people died from, from cancer exposure and radiation, on it is wildly unfair to judge nuclear power today in the United States of America to an accident in a Soviet country in 1972, or the, the power plant was built in 1972. You can't, you that's incomparable. Now, Slater, what about Fukushima? Fukushima 2011, remember the the, the, uh, tsunami hit the nuclear power plant. 16,000 people were killed from that earthquake and tsunami. Zero from the Fukushima nuclear power plant. And there has been no increase in radiation from the power plant at all. So what are we doing? Why the fear? What's going on? As I mentioned a second ago, in 1960, there was a plan to go carbon-free with nuclear power plants. But a PR machine shut it down. Peter Thiel is now in a very influential position. And I think he will implore President Trump to fast-track nuclear energy. And to do that, it's going to take a PR campaign with facts, like what I've been talking about here, to convince people that it's safe. But I think it can be easily done because it can now be pitched as the new planet saving carbon free energy plan. <laughs> right? In the past in 1960s in 1960 with the nuclear plant it wasn't pitched as a way to save the planet or it wasn't pitched as a way to be carbon free. But now, because everyone's so freaking out about carbon all the time, we're like, all right, fine, (laughs) carbon-free, right? And it's gluten-free. It's inexpensive and carbon-free. Now, let's say Trump proposes this. Let's say he proposes a a, a planet-saving, carbon-free energy grid. What's the left going to do? How are they going to react? Well, they can do one of two things. They can either be humble and admit that this is a good policy and they support it. Or they will double down on their hatred of him and they will hallucinate. My guess is they will continue to hallucinate. And they're going to say nuclear power is the worst thing in the whole world, which you can come back with those facts I just shared to you about the three most known nuclear disasters. I would argue the only three. Uh, And they'll tell you about how horrible those things were. And you can say, were they, you know, more people died in the helicopter crash. Follow, you know, after the attack, I keep saying attack after the, that's a habit, right? Nuclear attack. Uh, More people died in the helicopter crash after the nuclear meltdown in Chernobyl than the, than the explosion itself. So like, so this is the hallucination they're going to make after you share with them those facts. They're going to say, Slater, where are we going to store all the nuclear waste that comes from all these nuclear power plants you're going to build? Right? Let's say we build 100 nuclear power plants across the country. What are we going to do with all the nuclear waste? This is what's so interesting about fear and fear-based statements like that one. Do you have any idea how much nuclear waste a nuclear power plant creates. Now I'll admit, I had no idea. Why would I know? Why would anyone know? But it's so funny because people are so concerned about where we're going to put all the nuclear waste without having any idea how much nuclear waste there is. That's weird, right? Isn't that interesting? Like, I know you felt this before. You're like, oh, geez, you know, what are we going to do with it? There's so, so much of it. Is there? How do you know? Does anyone listening have any idea how much nuclear waste a nuclear power plant creates? The answer is no. I, I, who, who would, unless we have a nuclear physicist sitting around listening to the blaze the right now, which we very well might. But if you don't know how much nuclear waste a nuclear power plant creates, how can you, how can you make an opinion based off of or, or, or make an opinion on what are we going to do with the waste? Is is the waste a thousand tons a year or is it a thimble full? I mean, we have no, we have no clue. But still, it's a huge concern. Oh, well, here's the answer. If you take all the nuclear waste that's been produced by the nuclear power industry in America in the last 40 years, are you with me? So all the nuclear power plants, which again, it's 20% of our electricity comes from nuclear power. Uh, All of it, all the nuclear waste from the last 40 years and you stacked it end to end. It would cover the size of a football field five yards deep. That's it. So think of your local high school football field Dig five yards down and you can fill all the nuclear waste that we've created in the last 40 years. That's what we're worried about. That's the concern. That's supposed to stop us. (laughs) Now, that's in the last 40 years. Today, countries that embrace nuclear power, like France, they've come up with ways to reuse 90%, excuse me, 97% of a used fuel rod to make new fuel rods. So disposal is not a concern that any other countries have yet. We pretend like it's such a problem. We can't build another nuclear power plant because of it. Crazy. I look forward in the next four years to the beginnings of a carbon free electric grid, not for the sake of the planet. The planet's going to be fine with whatever we do, but it's smart because it's nuclear is cheap. It's reliable. It's reliable. And then you get the added benefit of the thumb in the nose of the left because it's also carbon-free. So join us, progressives, in our quest to create a carbon-free electric grid or make a fool out of yourself hallucinating against it. one 933 93 Slater Radio on Twitter. And uh, you can search for The Mike Slater Show on Facebook. The Blaze Radio Network, spread the word.
2: Mike Slater. On The Blaze Radio Network.
0: next generation of talk radio this is mike slater
1: do you see how that cascade works though that we were talking about in uh two segments ago right you have, imagine a line of people the first person doesn't really know but they 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 come to a conclusion the second person has no idea so they're like well i'll just go with what that first guy says the third person thinks something different completely different but they say oh geez those first two people they both agree and they're probably smarter than me, so I'll just agree with what they think. And then you got three people who all agree the same thing for no real reason, <laughs> right? That's how this cascade works. And it works uh, a lot of the time, and this is the problem with scientific consensus. Most of the time, it's just informational cascade, and it's true with all of us too. When it comes to let's say nuclear energy, right? We assume it's dangerous. We assume. Because the guy before us and the guy before him and the other guy that I kind of know and I've heard sort of on the internet and TV in the past have said it's horrible and tragic and the disasters have been epic and horrible and everyone's dying of cancer and it's so dangerous. And what are we going to do with the waste? No no one's dying. And there barely is any waste. And it's fine. Right? But we just assume um, the worst. It's weird. Uh, The other day, this article from Reuters giant arc slides, not an arc, it's a dome slides over Chernobyl site to block radiation for a century. Uh, Here's the article real quick in the middle of a vast exclusion zone in Northern Ukraine. uh, This is a giant moving structure is being slid over the Chernobyl nuclear site to prevent deadly radiation spewing from the stricken reactor for the next hundred years on April 26, 1986, a botched test, at the Soviet nuclear plant sent clouds of smoldering nuclear material across large swaths of Europe, forced over 50,000 people to evacuate, and poisoned unknown numbers of workers in its cleanup. Wow. Some dramatic language from Reuters, right? Deadly radiation spewing from the stricken reactor. Right. Clouds of smoldering nuclear material, large swaths of Europe unknown numbers of people poisoned because no, nowhere in the article does it say that two people died in the explosion two and that no one has died from radiation and there is statistically no increase in cancer from anyone in the area but it poisoned an unknown numbers of (laughs) workers no it didn't unbelievable and this is why almost all the news you read is fake news at the very least, it's biased and doesn't provide a full, complete perspective, which is why I'm so glad you're here at The Blaze. Coming up next, uh, I want to talk about Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. We didn't get a chance to do that last week. And I have one more story about consensus, this time smaller class sizes. Does that mean your kids are going to get a better education? Break that down. Coming up next on the Mike Slater Show on The Blaze Radio Network. Brother the work.
0: You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network
1: centers america's greatest country in the world thanks for being happy saturday so we'll talk about we last hour we talked about scientific consensus and there's so many things in just recent history that it, there was consensus on and now totally wrong so earlier we talked about high fat diets and its connection to heart disease and oh so so obvious and the whole thing a total sham and it's same thing with global warming and i think in the next couple of years uh because of Trump winning and who he's appointing around him, particularly the new head of the EPA, uh, a lot of this consensus nonsense will go away as more voices are able to be heard. So, uh, I have one more consensus thing that I want to debunk coming up at the uh, in 30 minutes. But first, I want to talk about this because this is something that we should know, uh, and I don't want to skip over it. We never got to it last week. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. He is uh, known as the 9-11 mastermind, even though I never use the word mastermind to describe these guys. Uh, but he came up with with the 9-11 attack. And he also is the guy who beheaded Daniel Pearl. Does that name ring a bell? He was a, a journalist for the Wall Street Journal. And he was beheaded. And it was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed who did it. Now, when he was captured... The guy who interrogated him for the CIA, James E. Mitchell, is now telling his story. Here's one quick story to start off before we get to the big conclusion. Mitchell asked KSM, that's what they call him, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. I'm just going to say KSM for now. The terrorist, bad guy. Mitchell asked KSM if it was... A hard thing to do. To decapitate Daniel Pearl. Right, so you can imagine that question. Was that was that a difficult thing to do? Now, because you have a soul, you interpreted that question as: Was it emotionally difficult? Right, was was this was this? a hard thing emotionally to cut off a human being's head. But KSM misunderstood the question and his response to that question was, Oh no, no, no problem. I had very sharp knives just like slaughtering sheep. All right. So that's the kind of guy that we're talking about here with KSM. Okay. James Mitchell's the guy who came up with the enhanced interrogation techniques. And he says that they worked so well that when the terrorists broke, the captured terrorists became what they called terrorist think tanks. They would identify voices in phone calls. They would decipher encrypted messages. They would even hold seminar classes for CIA officials and and teach them on how the terrorists would plan attacks and how they would recruit terrorists and all the rest. So much. That KSM told Mitchell one day that he, the Mitchell, the CIA guy, Mitchell, should be on the FBI's most wanted list because he is a graduate of one of KSM's training camps. That Mitchell should be known as as an associate of KSM because he knows so much now. There's a lot to talk about here, but I think this is the part that we all need to know. I'm going to quote Mark Thiessen here in the Washington Post. Thiessen said today, some on both the left and the right argue that Al-Qaeda wanted to draw us into a quagmire in Afghanistan. And now the Islamic State wants to do the same in Iraq and Syria. Let me pause here. That was me. I definitely saw the, saw the argument that Al-Qaeda attacked us here in America so that we would go to Afghanistan and just like the Soviets did, uh, get stuck in Afghanistan for decades. And that's why they attacked us. I de- among other reasons too, but I definitely see that saw that being part of it. Back to the story, KSM said that that is dead wrong. Far from trying to draw us in, KSM said that Al Qaeda expected the United States to respond to 9/11 as we had the 1983 bombing of the Marine Barracks in Beirut. When KSM told Mitchell the United States quote turned tail and ran. He also thought we would treat 9-11 as a law enforcement matter, just as we had the bombings of the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania and the USS Cole in Yemen. Yeah, we'll arrest a few operatives and we'll fire a few missiles in empty tents, but otherwise leaving Al-Qaeda free to plan the next attack. Then KSM looked at me and said, how was I supposed to know that cowboy George Bush would announce he wanted us dead or alive and then invade Afghanistan to hunt us down? Mitchell says, KSM explained that if the United States had treated 9-11 like a law enforcement matter, here's the key. If we treated 9-11 like a law enforcement matter, like we had every other attack from al-Qaeda prior, he, al-Qaeda, would have had more time to launch a second wave of attacks. But he was not able to because al-Qaeda was stunned, quote, by the ferocity and swiftness of George W. Bush's response. There's so much going on here. Let me, let me just cut right to the conclusion. I think the war in Afghanistan was a just war. I think a lot of lessons need to be learned, need to be learned about the occupation afterwards. But there's no doubt that the war itself originally um, was justified. And now we know that it stopped another wave of serious terrorist attacks on par with what 9-11 was. And Just that aspect should be noted and celebrated. Now, does that excuse everything else that's happened in Afghanistan and the other, you know, how many years has it been now? 15 years? And some other things that were done poorly and money wasted and lives lost. No, no, no. But no, 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 no. These are different things. But just point one should be noted. That according to KSM, going into Afghanistan stopped other terrorist attacks because they weren't able to playing more tax, that needs to be noted and celebrated. Let me quote this here. KSM told Mitchell, we will win. Who's we Al Qaeda, not just Al Qaeda, Islamic extremists. We will win because Americans don't realize that we don't need to defeat you militarily. We only need to fight long enough for you to defeat yourself by quitting. Let me read that again because that's everything. We, the terrorists, will win because Americans don't realize we don't need to defeat you militarily. We only need to fight long enough for you to defeat yourself by quitting. And he said those large-scale attacks like 9-11, they were, quote, nice but not necessary. And instead, a series of, quote, low-tech attacks could bring down America the same way that enough disease-infected fleas can bring down an elephant. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed said that jihadi minded brothers this is the quote jihadi minded brothers will immigrate into the United States, wrap themselves in America's laws and rights until they were strong enough to rise up and attack. He said brothers would relentlessly continue their attacks and the American people would eventually become so tired, so frightened and so weary of war that they would just want it to end. Eventually Khalid Sheikh Mohammed said eventually. America will expose her neck for us to slaughter. A day I I do not look forward to at all. It will be the worst, I told you so, of our lives. Because I know it's not me telling you this is what's going to happen. It's all of us telling the rest of the country that this is what's going to happen. But the worst, I told you so, of our lives will be when there's a series of small attacks. An uprising in a way orchestrated, choreographed, constant attacks, low level, low scale, deadly. When that happens, and when it happens from people who, as Khalid Sheikh Mohammed said, immigrated into the United States and wrapped ourselves in America's rights and laws, when they rise up and attack, that will be the worst I told you so in our lives. And it will be right in front of us. Now you would think that everyone in America, if we would just stop picking teams, Would say, okay, very high level person in Al Qaeda. We'll take you at your word here. Therefore, how can we make sure that this doesn't happen? How can we make sure that exactly what he said is going to happen won't happen? How can we be smart about our refugee and immigration programs? But no, we're not having that conversation. It's all about what team you're on. And it's about people choosing to be ignorant to reality. Until we completely expose our necks. Or until we decide we don't want to fight at all. But as Khalid Sheikh Mohammed said, that's what they're waiting for. It doesn't matter whether we want to fight them or not. There's a fight. He said America may not be in a religious war with them. But he said he and other true Muslims are in a religious war with America. And his, he and his brothers will not stop until the entire world lives under Sharia law. His words, not mine. They won't stop. Are we going to be foolish enough to expose our neck to slaughter? 188 900 3393 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
2: This is Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network.
0: later on the blaze radio
1: network i want to chat about this for a few more minutes i think this is kind of important so david french one of my favorite writers today he works for the national review army veteran he deployed to iraq uh he wrote a headline in the national review terrorists are people too now if you did not know david french and you did not know the national review that you would think this is some hippy dippy article about how uh the terrorists have feelings we need to understand them uh but that's not what he meant um he meant it more along the lines of these terrorists are people too, meaning they panic. They have fears. Most of them try to preserve their lives. And while they want to kill us, they don't necessarily want to fight. Right. So they're people too. Uh, he says when he was deployed, they would capture six terrorists for every one they killed. And he said, some terrorists would only fight to the death. When they were high on drugs because they had to overcome their human instinct of self-survival, even though they were fighting for the caliphate and all rest. And even among the fanatics, they are humans too, and they are limited by human exhaustion. They get tired and they make mistakes. French said it turns out, and this is according to what Khalid Sheikh, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is saying as well, and his experience. It turns out that when you don't just bomb terrorists, but also hunt them down seize their safe havens, and make them flee for their lives, then they're less able to plan and execute terror attacks. Conversely, when you do what Obama did and pull back American military forces so that terrorists have ample time and space to rest, rearm, and recruit, then the danger metastasizes as it grows. And in the last two years, the West, our president, has allowed ISIS to build and maintain a caliphate. So Trump's got quite a job in front of him. This is according to French. He said Trump has to help a war-weary public understand that our enemy hopes that we tire before they do. Remember what Khalid Sheikh Mohammed said. He said in the end, we will win. Al-Qaeda will win because Americans don't realize we don't need to defeat you militarily. We only need to fight long enough for you to defeat yourself by quitting. So. So. We're gonna quit. Now, does that mean we need to keep doing exactly what we're doing just the way we're doing it right now? No. We can change course, change path, and do things better, obviously. But to cut and run run is uh that's what they really want. I was talking to some veterans a couple weeks ago, and I asked them what they thought of Mad Dog Mattis being the new secretary of defense, and they love him. They're like, oh my god, the greatest ever. Right? He's 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 they're over the moon with this guy. He is a scholar. Warrior. He always has a book in his hand. He is a student of history in every way. Whenever he's deployed, he reads Marcus Aurelius' meditations. Um, he's, he's just as scholarly as generals have ever been. And he scoffs at people who say that we are in a new generation of war. He says Alexander the Great would not be confused by the enemy that is ISIS for one second. We've seen this all before, he says. He's a brilliant man. And he says we're not going to make the same mistakes. That's why it's important to have that history. But it's also important to our history about what's failed. And to stop doing that. And to learn from these last eight years. And stop doing that. That's why I'm excited about Mad Dog Mattis to be leading the Secretary of the Department of Defense. I think this is as good of an appointment as you could ever make. And I think we're going to see some changes in Afghanistan. uh, They're going to be for the better. And I think we're going to see some changes in how we deal with ISIS. And I think that will be for the better. And and you just, what Khalid Sheikh Mohammed said to the interrogators just, just blows every progressive sentiment to Smithereens is like, Oh, you know, they just buy, uh, they just want that. They went, oh, they don't want to do are We're feeding right into them all. No, no, they want us to tire. Their whole goal is the long game. I don't want to change topics too bad here, but just because I was thinking about my buddies, my military friends who uh, who asked about Mad Dog Mattis. First of all, about Mad Dog, they said that he is as adamant in killing the enemy as any, anyone in the military. But when you talk to him, he's as kind of a man as you've ever met. But then these guys started talking about General Petraeus, who they also love. And I know Petraeus was in the running maybe to be Secretary of State or something. I'm glad he wasn't. Right, and it said uh, Trump won with the CEO of uh, Mobile, right, Exxon Mobil, uh, Rex Tillerson. But I'm glad Petraeus wasn't because, and listen, as great as he is, as smart as he is, you know what did he do with classified information, right? And politically, that would just look so hypocritical if conservatives are going to be critical of what Hillary did with classified information, and then we go ahead and give Petraeus another pass. Now he did much less than what Hillary did, but he still broke the law. So I talked to my Marine friends about that, and they said, "Yes, I know, but he faced his punishment." Right. He faced his punishment and now he should be allowed uh, back in. And they said, he's too important of a resource to never use again. Right. He was the commander of central command director of the CIA, another scholar warrior. So he didn't get the secretary of state position, but we'll see if he does have a role in the new administration in any way and how they can talk away the fact that he also was, you know, booted because of mishandling classified information. The point is, Trump has at his disposal, and he has surrounded himself with many generals who truly know the threat and who want to fight and win. And we talked about an hour ago. Arrogant people do not surround themselves with people like this. Arrogant people do not surround themselves with General Mad Dog Mattis and brilliant minds like that. Because arrogant people need to be the smartest person in the room. So they surround themselves with yes men. President Trump has not not done that. President-elect Trump has not done that. Now, to conclude this Afghanistan conversation, we've all asked ourselves once or many times in the last 15 years, was it worth it with Afghanistan? Was fighting Afghanistan worth it? Gosh, it's hard to say. It's hard to say because we don't know what would have happened if we did not go and take the fight to them, right? As Khalid Sheikh Mohammed said, and we didn't. He's like, we didn't expect Cowboy George Bush to come and attack us. He says they were planning another attack. Would they have been successful? Would it have been worse than nine eleven? We don't. We don't know. So we can't. It's hard to conclude that. But we do know they were planning more, and there haven't been more, not on any scale like that. So yes, there were mistakes. There have been mistakes. But yes, I I still do think it was worth it. In the end, I'll I'll, uh, leave with this line from French. Our enemy is human, but its leaders have the resolve to fight the long fight. In the United States, we don't lack for young men and women who share that same determination. Jihadists cannot outlast the American warrior. Let me say it again. Jihadists cannot outlast the American warrior. But can they outlast the American public? one 888 want to come back. Final story on scientific consensus, this time with small class sizes. Are they Are they always best? We'll talk about that next. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word.
0: This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio. On
1: the Blaze Radio Network. I'm just going to turn the microphone on. Um, Terry said in Facebook post, I'm being, I'm ultra conservative, but you are being irresponsible about nuclear power. The problem with Chernobyl is the land around Chernobyl is not habitable. Habitable. That is the problem with nuclear power. Once there's been a devastating accident, the area around it is not habitable for decades. That's why I would oppose nuclear energy. Uh, it's just foolish. I mean, this is again, nuclear That that, that you can't. So, so disregard everything. All the facts about how only two people died in the explosion, there's no increase in cancer, no radiation poisoning, not like nothing. So let's say all, everyone died, right? Let's say a million people died from cancer after Chernobyl, which didn't happen. But let's just say a million people died. You still can't judge nuclear power in 2016 America With nuclear power plants in 1972, Soviet Union. Right? Those are two two totally different worlds. You don't think we've improved nuclear energy in the last 40 years? And the safety around it and all the rest? That's insane. For the Soviets to have an accident. Okay? For the Soviets to have an accident. 40 years ago. And for us, for you, Terry, today, to be like, oh, no, pff, off the table. Oh, can't ever have nuclear power. Nope. What? Why not? Like, <laughs> like it's, there's, again, we get 20% of our nuclear power from power plants today. Are there any nuclear power accidents? Any accidents? Any meltdowns? And by the way, the land around Chernobyl right now is flourishing. There's animals and plants like, like have never been seen in the area before. So is the land not habitable? It's crazy. Okay. Stop with the nuclear power. Fear mongering. Fukushima nuclear power plant had a tsunami hit it. It's fine but do not judge the failings of the Soviet union and put that on us. And by therefore weaken America based on things they've done poorly. Like why? That's, that's, that's doesn't make any sense. So there's my response to that there. Um, okay. Speaking of uh, so, scientific consensus, i got another example of one that is just, uh, I don't want to say it's wrong. I want to say it's incomplete. Like some scientific consensus is flat out wrong. We talked about an example earlier. Um, I think last week, did we tell the story of sugar and how the sugar association paid a couple of Harvard scientists to say that sugar doesn't have any bad effects on health. Uh, I think that was last week. Earlier we shared the story about how, um, a high-fat diet was linked to heart disease, even though there's no real correlation there whatsoever. And how that spread that scientific consensus. Uh, it's the same thing with global warming, right? It's this fake consensus; it doesn't really exist. Uh, another one here, though, on, on a different topic, is with education. If you ask a hundred people, are, cl- are are smaller class sizes better for grade school kids? Are smaller class sizes better? A hundred of them would say yes, right? When everyone say that smaller class sizes are better. Why do we think this? It sounds like common sense, right? And a few decades ago in Tennessee, there was an experiment done on K uh, kindergarten and first graders. And some kindergartners and first graders had large class sizes. Some had small class sizes and they followed those kids for the next couple of years and it turns out that the kids the kindergarten and first graders that had well this time they were in you know ninth grade but those kids how do i word this are you with me the kids that were in the smaller class sizes in kindergarten and first grade had better test scores in ninth grade and the kindergartners and first graders in larger class sizes had lower test scores when they were in ninth grade so boom there you have it smaller class sizes are better Every politician picked up on this and ran with it. The unions loved it. we will explain why in a second. Uh, In California, they passed a law that limits class size to 20 kids in K through third grade. Wisconsin was 15 students per teacher in first through third grade. All across the country, different laws, uh, different states passed similar laws. It's cost billions of dollars. Florida spent $30 billion in the last 13 years to reduce class sizes. California spent $20 billion since 1996, and now we know that there's really no correlation at all. There is no correlation between smaller class sizes and academic performance.
2: <clears throat>
1: just give you a second to either scream at me, turn the radio off, or just process this information. There is zero correlation between class size and performance. It turns out it's not the class size that's the important thing. It's the quality of the teacher. Now, let me do a quick sidebar here and say there's so many different variables at play that you can't just say smaller class size is the difference. There's tons of variables, including the home being the biggest, but also the quality of the teacher is the biggest one in the school. It's not the class size. If you have an amazing teacher with 50 students, the kids are going to be better off with a ter- than with a terrible teacher with five students. Now, you may be saying, well, Slater, what's the big deal? Because smaller class sizes can't hurt, right? So, you know, it, it may not be the big difference maker that we thought it was, but it's not going to hurt kids. Well, it does hurt kids. It can hurt kids. We'll give you an example. Let's say there are 10 teachers in a school and they are all excellent, excellent, excellent teachers. I'm just going to use round numbers for for simplification. 10 teachers in a school and they're amazing teachers and there's 400 kids in this school. That's 40 kids per teacher. Then the state passes a law that says there can only be 20 kids per teacher. Well, that means the school needs to hire 10 new teachers. Well, let's say those those 10 new teachers are not. Not good. (laughs) They're not good teachers. So now you got half the kids, 200 of them, with the good teachers, the excellent teachers. And then you got half the kids, 200 of them, with bad teachers. Now, sure, they may be in a smaller class size. They would have been in a class size of 40. Now they're in a class size of 20. But the teacher's no good. So they fall behind more with the bad teacher. They fall behind. They do worse than if they were in the class with the good teacher, even if that classroom had forty kids? Now, obviously, I, those are very simplified numbers, but I'm just trying to help you like, help us visualize how the the unintended consequences of that. There's a big difference between hiring more teachers and hiring more good teachers. <laughs> It's better to have fewer good teachers in large classes than more teachers that aren't good in smaller class sizes. Now, again, everyone's different. Every school is different. Every kid's different. Every teacher's different. Every home is different. Every, 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 it's all different. There's this ideal world where every teacher is amazing and every class size is five kids. It's not reality. So are we going to, continue to push this small class size, small class size, small class size fetish as if every teacher was amazing and and we just got to get more teachers and they're all going to be just as amazing? Are we going to pretend that that's reality when it's not? Or are we going to do what we really need to do in order to help kids? So let me kick it up a notch here. Let's talk solutions as we like to do. Brookings Institute, a far left group says that we spend $12 billion a year, $12 billion a year in extra teacher salaries in order to get to the smaller class sizes. Right? $12 billion a year. That's $12 billion that could be spent on professional development for the existing teachers or, or any other things that would help kids. Maybe that money could be spent on art and music classes, stuff like that. It's a lot of money. It's just interesting to me how smaller class sizes seems so obvious. And we hear it and we're like, oh, yeah, smaller class sizes. Yeah, done. Okay, I I support that. I'll do whatever it takes. We'll raise taxes. We'll raise bonds. We'll pay teachers more, whatever. It sounds obvious. But if you think about it for a minute, you're like, well, maybe it doesn't. (laughs) Maybe that's not the most important thing. And maybe we shouldn't be spending billions of dollars on that. I don't know, and you can make it very personal, right? Would you rather your kid be in a class of 20 students with a terrible teacher or 30 students and an amazing teacher? Now, I know I'm using the extremes here, but, but I mean, that makes sense, right? You'd rather it be in the class with 30 kids and an, and an amazing teacher. So what was the smaller class size really about? Was it well meaning bureaucrats and, and politicians who really wanted to help the kids? Or maybe. Uh, I'm pretty sure that was just unions who wanted more union members, so they get more union dues from more teachers, so they have more political power. That's what that whole small class size thing was really all about. one eight eight nine hundred thirty three ninety three. No no let me one last thing. With an amazing teacher. A smaller class size is better than a bigger class. So let's say you have the same teacher. Would it be better if they taught 50 kids or 10 kids? 10. But again, that's not fantasy. That's not that's not reality. It's a fantasy. Because it tends to be the more teachers they hire, they're not as good quality as the other teachers. Generally speaking. 1-888-933-93. Mike Slater. So the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
2: Mike Slater.
0: We'll continue in a moment. On the Blaze Radio Network. Nine hundred thirty-three ninety-three. 3393 Mike
1: Slater is on. Slater Gazetters, I want to share a story. I have four minutes left here, and I want to share this just as a friendly reminder about how we need to conduct ourselves moving forward in the next four years. Uh, one of the great poems by Rudyard Kipling, if, uh, if you can keep your head when all about you, people are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. And it goes on and on. And it ends with this. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, so never give up, right? 60 seconds. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance runs, so just keep running. Then yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And which is more, you'll be a man, my son. I bring that up because um, I was reminded of this this gentleman in history that is not well known. Uh, we all know the first black baseball player in Major League Baseball, right? Jackie Robinson. But who was the first black pitcher in Major League Baseball? Same year as Jackie Robinson. Same team. Brooklyn Dodgers. Isn't that interesting that like everyone knows Jackie Robinson, but no one knows Dan Bankhead. If anything, he had a harder job, right? I mean, Robinson started off as first baseman. Bankhead was the pitcher. The manager of the Dodgers said, I know this boy has the physical equipment to help this club. The only question is whether he will be able to withstand the tremendous pressure under which he will work. His problem is greater than Robinson's. All eyes are on the pitcher. He made it to the major leagues, obviously. He traveled with, I mean, Jackie Robinson, when, when the Dodgers traveled, they couldn't stay in the same hotel, right? Jackie Robinson and Dan Bankhead. So they'd stay in the same segregated hotels. Uh, they each together took the yelling and the death threats. I mean, it was a very interesting case study. It's not like they were on different teams. They were on the same team. They did the same thing together. But Bankhead couldn't make it. He didn't pitch well. He went back to the minors. And just couldn't do it. He uh, was broke. Slept around a lot and his best friend's word. He was facing inner turmoil. He couldn't get back on his feet. Smoked every day, died of lung cancer at 56. Why did he not succeed in the majors? It wasn't his skills. It was his temperament. The manager of the Dodgers said that Jackie Robinson was the first black player. Yes. For his skills, but mostly because he was the right kind of man to take on the challenge. A biographer of Dan Bankhead said, when suddenly called on to take the complicated and dangerous job of National Trailblazer, first black pitcher in Major League Baseball, he, Bankhead, simply lacked the physiological makeup to overcome the numerous obstacles he encountered. He said, I'm scared to death. This is Bankhead. I'm scared to death that I'm going to hit a white boy with a pitch. And if I do, there might be some sort of riot. So he played scared. I just think that's an interesting story about opportunity because both these men were given the same opportunity to make history, but only one did. And yes, he played great, but it was his temperament that made him heroic. Now, I don't like the word temperament because it got kind of all mixed up with the election, but it was his character, his attitude, his ability to be in control of himself. And that's part of Rudyard Kipling's poem, If. If you can keep your head about it when all others are losing theirs and blaming it on you. Do we have the attitude, the character, the temperament to be in control of ourselves now these next four years? I think these last eight years have been good training on what to do and what not to do. Slater Radio on Twitter, Mike Slater Show on Facebook, and we will see you next Saturday. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater.
0: Part of the next generation of talk radio.
2: On The Blaze Radio Network.